The following is from the conference and U.S. support for Israeli apartheid. All conference information is available at www.israelapartheidcon.org. I'm Janet McMahon with the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. And our next speaker is Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly. He is the Gary B. Nash Professor of American History at UCLA, where he earned his master's and doctorate degrees. He has also taught at the University of Southern California, Columbia University, NYU, and Oxford University. Dr. Kelly's research has explored, among other topics, the history of American social movements, the African diaspora in Africa, African-American intellectuals, music and visual culture, and surrealism and Marxism. His essays have appeared in a wide variety of professional and general interest publications, and he's the author of many books, including Freedom Dreams, The Black, Black Radical Imagination, Race, Re- Race Rebels, Culture, Politics, and the Black Working Class, and Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original. He is currently writing a biography of the late journalist and author Grace Halsell, who was a great friend of the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, and whose many articles she wrote for our magazine are archived on our website, wrmea.org. In fact, we first met Robin when he visited our office as part of his research for his biography of Grace. A member of the board of the U.S. Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel, Dr. Kelly will be discussing efforts to resist Israel's lobby on campus and in the community. And as a reminder, you can submit questions through the Q&A function on the Zoom screen or email ask at israellobbycon.org. And with that, it's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Robin D. Kelly on what's been a very busy day for him so far. Yes, thank you so much, Janet. I appreciate that, that um, the introduction. And I apologize, you know, I, I'm doing two conferences at once. I just gave a talk on Rosa Luxemburg. Then I fled. I said, I can't take questions. Sorry. So they're kind of mad at me. Um, but so I want to thank the organizers for inviting me, especially Janet and Delinda um, and all the folks at IRMEP. Um, I have a very tall order of things to address in 20 minutes. So I'm going to get right on it. Um, with respect to resistance to the Israel uh, lobby on campuses, there's so much going on. Um, and I'm known. I'm in no position to report on all of it, but I would suggest two things. One, always read the excellent reporting of Nora Barrows, Nora Barrows Friedman on this. And also Palestine Legal, of which I'm a member of the board, uh, does an excellent job of monitoring and actually fighting ongoing attacks on students uh, and faculty who dare criticize uh, Israel or stand up for Palestinian rights. Um, in fact, just in 2020 alone, uh, Palestine Legal responded to 213 incidents of suppress- suppression of U.S.-based Palestine advocacy. And two-thirds of them, not surprisingly, involve cases of students and faculty who are falsely accused of anti-Semitism uh, for merely supporting Palestinian rights. So um, irrespective of new definitions of anti-Semitism, we've been dealing with the kind of smear campaigns for years. Uh, and of course, Israel lobby groups like the Lawfare Project and the Zionist Advocacy Center uh, have, you know, filed lawsuits and uh, used the federal civil rights complaint process to to make unfounded uh, claims 
to silence campus uh, Palestine advocacy. Uh, and also we've seen the legislature being used. 21 bills were introduced at the state and federal levels targeting the movement for Palestinian rights. And on college campuses and elsewhere, we see cyberbullying uh, and surveillance, which have, has really inten- intensified uh, with Israel-funded smartphone apps designed to generate mass smear campaigns against activists uh, with maximum effect and in record time. Um, I won't, because time is short, there's a couple uh, cases you might want to look at. Uh, the use of the app, uh, Mission on Act IL, uh, was used after SJP chapter at Tufts University was recognized with an award for its work on uh, end the Delhi Exchange campaign, which looks at, um, which really exposed the links between campus police and the Israeli military. Uh, and the, the administration attacked the SJP for getting the award. And then there was this kind of Zionist attack on students on social media using this app. Um, and then also some of you may be familiar with the case at Florida State University where Ahmad uh, Daldik, uh, a Palestinian American student who grew up in the West Bank and had tweeted you know, as a teenager about the kind of uh, what life was like under occupation. He was attacked uh, and there's a movement to recall him after he was uh, uh, elected the um, FSU student Senate president in June 2020. Uh, and there's lots of cases like this, you know. But what's really important is that the heightened attacks we're seeing are reactions to losing. They're not necessarily signs that um, the kind of Zionist uh, position or the Israeli lobbies are, are winning. Um, they have not been able to silence SJP or the BDS campaign to diverse university endowments from businesses operating in occupied territories or even ending the exchanges with Israeli universities. When SJP um, held a national conference on my campus, UCLA, a couple of years ago, it was not only violently attacked uh, by various Zionist organizations, but Kenneth Marcus, who was Trump's appointee to the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights opened an investigation uh, into um, what had happened uh, and, in fact, was demanding a list of speakers, the list of speakers at the conference, and threatened to punish the students. And Powell Legal intervened, and ultimately a court ruled that the administration has no legal claim to that list. And that was kind of a victory. Um, uh, and similarly, when uh, Marcus's uh, outfit investigated SJP at NYU, again, triggered by Israel, uh, Israel advocates, uh, you know, they found no wrongdoing. But since they couldn't really prosecute um, and since they found no wrongdoing, they convinced uh, NYU's president to issue a statement prohibiting discrimination based on the Trump executive order adopting the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Um, and just to be clear, the college presidents have been at the forefront of doing the bidding of, of the lobby. And that includes Black presidents like, you know, Melvin Oliver of Pitzer College, who vetoed the College Council's overwhelming decision to temporarily suspend the study abroad program with Haifa University and his neighbor, uh, here in California, the new president of Pomona College, 
G. Gabrielle Starr, uh, also African-American, who essentially condemned student government unanimous uh, adoption of a BDS resolution with regard to student government funds. So usually it's kind of like the same same kind of response. Uh, And there are other things we could talk about, but I'm going to skip all that and turn to the other issue, which is the parallels uh, between South Africa and the movement toward Palestinian liberation, as well as solidarity with Black Lives Matter. So first, no matter what, the term apartheid is applicable to Israel, especially when we consider the UN definition of apartheid, which is not, of course, limited to South Africa alone. Most people on this call know this already, so I don't have to repeat it. But just a reminder that apartheid, you know, did more than strip South Africans of voting and civil rights. It dispossessed Africans from land uh, through legislative and military acts, raised entire communities, transferred Africans to government townships and to Bantu stands. And it devised a system of racial classification and population control that limited the movement of Africans in towns and cities and denied them social and economic privileges based on race. So I could describe uh, what's happening both within the 48 uh, boundaries as well as the occupied territories. Um, and I just want to point to um, uh, the way in which it not only outlawed organizations that challenged uh, apartheid or apartheid state, but, you know, without recounting the litany of legislative acts, I want to suggest uh, some of the findings of Nora Ericott in her brilliant book, Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine, which shows that uh, whereas the world condemned South Africa's Bantustan policies under the guise of granting some limited independence or state status, proponents of the two-state solution celebrate the creation of the Palestinian Authority. And there's a kind of refusal to recognize this as, as apartheid, as a Bantustan policy, as the late Edward Said called it. Um, okay. Now, one question is, you know, how, how are Black Lives Matter and Palestinian grassroots movements working together and, and are they natural allies? And this is something I've written a lot about, um, but this is like the thumbnail sketch. Uh, the recognition that the subjugation of Palestinians both in the occupied territories and within the 48 borders of Israel is, is you know, um, that these are kind of apartheid policies, or it is an act of apartheid, um, became increasingly clear to African-American activists. Uh, it has been clear for a while, but especially since about 2010, 2011, when you have more and more uh, African-American activists joining delegations to Palestine. <clears throat> Um, and out of these encounters, there are a whole bunch of new organizations emerged that linked Israeli apartheid uh, to anti-Black racism, uh, supporting BDS, and also emphasizing Black-Palestinian solidarity. Um, the turning point, of course, was the Gaza Ferguson nexus in 2014, which deepened the relationship uh, between Palestinians, especially in St. Louis and across the country, as well as in Palestine. Um, as they stood in solidarity with the protests around the killing of Mike Brown. And then 2016, the Movement for Black Lives, which is a coalition of over 100 organizations, issued quite a forceful statement labeling Israel an apartheid state 
in characterizing the ongoing war in Gaza and the West Bank as, as a form of genocide. Um, the parallels of state-sanctioned violence, uh, both in Palestine and occupied territories and the U.S., became a basis for solidarity, but it also gave way to a kind of politics of analogy. And as I've written elsewhere, analogies can be really useful, but they can also obscure more than they reveal. And I think it's important to understand uh, this question of solidarity, especially Black, Brown, and Indigenous solidarity with Palestine, with Palestinians, um, requires that we move beyond analogies and recognize a longstanding vision of the indivisibility of justice. Uh, the basis for solidarity is not analogy, but the realization that these struggles are linked, not only to each other, but to injustice and to oppression around the world. The relationship is more entangled than analogous. Um, it, you know, like, you know, indivisibility, indivisibility of justice means it knows no boundaries. It's founded not on shared experience, but shared principles. Uh, and that's why to really understand it, we need to go back and recognize that the foundation for Black Palestinian solidarity really goes back to the 1960s and 70s uh, when we thought of the Palestinian liberation movement as a national liberation movement. And it's true that the context was resistance to racialized state uh, sanctioned violence, the ghetto rebellions of, of the U.S. in the late 60s and early 70s, um, resistance to occupation, the linking of these things. But these were armed struggles against brutal military regimes. So the convergence of Black urban rebellions and the Arab-Israeli war birthed the first significant wave of Black Palestinian solidarity and signaled the demise of the U.S. Uh, quote-unquote Black Jewish alliance. And I should say that there are many Black Jewish alliances. The idea that there's a singular one uh, is a mistake. The Communist Party itself was a kind of Black Jewish alliance that operated within it. Um, but most importantly, that the more traditional civil rights-based Black Jewish alliance was still founded on the notion of shared analogy, right? Analogy of oppression rather than shared principles of liberation. And that's why, you know, within the left, you do get um, a segment of anti-Zionist Jews breaking with um, Zionist Jews, uh, you know, on the left that have a different relationship to Black liberation struggles. That is to say, you know, third world uh, insurgencies and anti-imperialist movements radically reordered the political alliances between 1967 and the mid-1970s. But what was being reordered wasn't just political alliances, but really a vision of the world. The post-67 radical insurgencies were more nationalist struggles um, for a modern nation state uh, as a path of decolonization, but they also ought to be understood as kind of world-making rather than nation-building. So behind these Black expressions of solidarity with Palestine lay a vision of world-making rather than a politics of analogy or identity. Um, okay, so the hardest question to answer, which I don't really have a good answer, because uh, I hope that we can discuss it in our conversation, and the final thing I just want to talk about is that you know, what, what are the lessons we can learn for today's activists? Um, one really important lesson, of course, 
is that, you know, as our demands, you know, as movements, especially coming out of the, the, um, the anti-police protests of spring 2020, the George Floyd protests, um, the struggle against fascism in this country, that the return of indigenous sovereignty, the abolition of police and prisons, I mean, these are the kinds of demands being raised that alongside all these or central to all these is the fight um, against Israel's annexation of Palestinian lands and the ongoing occupation. And that in part requires uh, the defunding of the Israeli apartheid military state, which of course defunding that side of the police is about withdrawing all funds from the United States, which is the ongoing fight that all of you have been engaged in. Um, I um, I think the other lesson is that BDS actually does work. Uh, we saw this with South Africa, uh, along with the kind of label and civil society insurgencies, really brought down the apart the formal apartheid apartheid state. I mean, there's still problems with South Africa, but what I think is really important to remember is that South Africa responded with responded to BDS. Uh, with reforms. So you have this uh, new constitution being implemented in 1984, which extended limited voting rights to so-called colored people, to Indians, um, and opened up the door. But BDS didn't stop then. In fact, it it ramped up. And so it ramped up. And in fact, most of the successes of the BDS movement in South Africa occur after the adoption of reforms. Where, you know, 1985, where 50 companies pulled out of South Africa, Citibank pulls out, um, declares that it would not make loans to South Africa after 1985. Chase Manhattan did the same thing. So 86, you begin to see even more movements out. So that's to say that even though a lot of us are rethinking the BDS movement, the best strategy, it's something that should continue to be fought, uh, even if it doesn't appear to produce like immediate results. Um, And finally, and this is not so much a lesson as much as a warning. I mean, Palestine always, and this has been said by several of the speakers, Palestine, when it comes to some of these solidarity movements in in the US, uh, tends to ebb and flow. In moments of spectacular violence, like, you know, Gaza in 2014 or 2009, I mean, we, we see a kind of interest emerging and then a kind of ebb and flow. With the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, uh, you know, the, 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 the fear of the Trump administration and its relationship to Israel, uh, the, the no daylight, the, you know, the, the, the insistence that they recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, all this led to a kind of increase of interest, but with a democratic regime in power, there may be a kind of ebb, which we can't afford right now. And so my concern always is that as we fight uh, to transform policing in this country, as we fight to end all forms of oppression, that Palestine never leave uh, its role as a central site of struggle in that we continue to raise uh, our our voices around this in in fight because... uh, you know, we, we, we're not free, um, until, you know, Palestine is free. And that is why 
again, our struggles are not analogous as so much linked. Uh, and so with that, um, I'll stop. I know there's a lot of things I skipped over, but I figured we have some time for a conversation before people are all worn out. Thank you very much, Robin. I'm having trouble starting my video, so I think you'll just be hearing my voice for the immediate okay. future. But one thing I wanted to ask you about concerns BDS, and I remember boycotting South Africa, and I was never called anti-Christian or anti-white. But when it comes to boycotting Israel, it becomes the discussion of anti-Semitism. Absolutely. And I'm also struck by Reverend Awad's observation that Christian Zionists, their, their support of Israel is based on their belief in the prophecy. So in neither case is the discussion about behavior. I mean, to me, boycott is in response to certain behaviors. So I'm curious what you think, how, we, how can we reframe the discussion about BDS to just have it almost be automatically Pavlovian response, like it's about behavior. It's not about who's doing it even really. Right. Well, that's why the anti-Semitism uh, uh, assertions are the, the most powerful weapon they have. In fact, it's the only weapon they have. It's the only weapon they have because it's the one thing that gets brought out all the time. I have never, I mean, because you're right. Um, anti-Semitism is not necessarily used against the apartheid state and anti-Afrikaner, you know, <laughs> none of that. Um, there, there's a way in which is, you know, you can claim the moral high ground when it comes to South Africa because it is strictly racial. Despite, and that's why U.S. foreign policy was always about um, uh, hiding its intent. You know, that is constructive engagement as a secret, as opposed to like an open. Uh, so in the case of of Israel, I mean, this is why this fight against the continual uh, use of anti-Semitism as an um, epithet, the redefinition of it, um, you know, is the biggest hurdle we're facing because they refuse to talk about policy. Like I've never seen, um, uh, you know, the is- Israeli state representative saying, we're going to show you pictures of just how good life is under occupation. You know, I mean, at, at least the, the U.S. South, they tried some of that. They tried to use propaganda to show, you know, actually, look, they're, they're, they have farms. The olive trees are growing well. You know, no one's being displaced. But instead, it's like, if you criticize us, you're anti-Semitic. And we will continue to build settlements. So that, to me, and this is what I think we're all here for, to figure out strategies to do that. But I do think that there has been some significant uh, successes. I mean, no matter what people might think about the Jerusalem Declaration, it is a step forward in a kind of refusal to say strictly, I mean, for all of its limitations and problems, that any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, even as as much as I haven't been attacked by the the um, well, not attacked by. Well, I, having having criticized ADL, even the ADL had to backpedal a little bit to say that there's some circumstances where criticism of Israel is acceptable. And I don't really believe that struggle is always um, incremental, but these small victories and the fact that um, SJP chapters are growing, not shrinking, that um, uh, that there are more hotspots. Uh, both on campuses and within 
various other social um, and public institutions uh, where people are taking stands, I think are important. And final thing is um, you've got some mainstream Democratic Congress people who are slightly to the left who are actually saying, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, who, who hasn't had a great position on Israel, I have to say, um, is actually considering, like, maybe we should withhold some money. I mean, you know, that's, as a victory, it's sort of like saying, you know, we're so happy that Derek Chauvin is going to go to jail you know, after killing someone on camera. But it is, it is some evidence that there might be a kind of ideological shift uh, that could tamp down the anti-Semitism arguments or, or assertions. Uh, but I think that's always going to be the ground of struggle, that, that right there. Well, and, and kind of a related question is, how have the tactics of the lobby changed over the decades? You've been through a lot. <laughs> so I'm just curious how you see it all. Yeah, you know, um, I can tell you the long decades, but I can tell you the, the, the last, the last decade we're in. I mean, when I, um, after my first trip to Palestine, um, that coincided with both the direct attacks on SJP chapters, uh, and on, um, specifically targeting, uh, you know, um, communities of color. And that was, a, that was a tactic. That was, you know, they created the Vanguard Leadership Group and groups like that where they would use uh, tours of, of Israel, uh, money, jobs, opportunities to try to make uh, the, the Zionist position multiracial, multicultural, um, and to be all-inclusive. All and it actually was, I wouldn't say successful, but what it did do was it was trying to siphon off um, those people identified with uh, their own kind of ethnic and racial struggles, anti-police struggles and stuff, and bring them into the fold and create a, a presentation of, of Israel, whether it's through pinkwashing or, you know, um, ethnic studies to sort of say, you know, we're, we're with you. We're like you. It's not, it's not a new strategy because if you go back to the post-war period, uh, Israel presented itself after the Nakba as, you know, another third world country. And they were trying to have alliances with the, with, you know, with the global South and it didn't quite work. So in some ways, this is like a miniature version of that. And it didn't work. It didn't work because what happened was people began to see through it, especially through, uh, more and more delegations and with, uh, the, the BDS campaign as a nonviolent civil society campaign, a lot of people who were not necessarily down with armed struggle or even thought about national liberation could be identified, could identify with that because it connected with South Africa in some direct ways. Um, so now it seems to me that that's a, they see that as if they haven't given up, but it's a failing strategy. And what what I see, at least, in terms of, of strategies and tactics, is to go after uh, directly um, activists to try to smear them, to create websites, to destroy their careers, to try to you know create false narratives 
so they can't get jobs or get into schools, to use social media as a way to literally name people and bring them down. It's a, it's a warfare tactic that is, is quite violent. Um, and I don't think it's, it's, so they're not really trying to win friends in this sense. What they're trying to do is destroy the enemy and then mark the enemy, you know, uh, as, as dangerous, you know, and as wanting to destroy, you know, um, all Jews everywhere in the world to destroy Israel. Um, and we saw, so there's that, but there's also a kind of, it's been raised earlier under the discussion, uh, of Phil Weiss's discussion of, of J Street, which is a kind of kinder, friendlier, more progressive, um, like let's find a middle ground strategy, which is very different. So you have these uh, breakaway groups from APAC and the more traditional uh, uh, form of, of, of lobbying to more left liberal, more liberal approaches. And we saw that in California recently uh, with the rewriting of the ethnic studies curriculum, where state of California through all kinds of pressures, uh, is trying to adopt a statewide ethnic studies curriculum for K through 12. And it was a very powerful curriculum that had a section on Palestine, on Palestine, uh, an Arab uh, American history, uh, which connected to Palestine and then was rewritten and rewritten precisely because of the lobby and rewritten in ways that made, um, Jewish experience both equivalent to other racialized groups and erase Palestine pretty much altogether. Um, and, you know, incorporated elements in the curriculum that would suggest or at least imply that attacks on Israel is part of an anti-Semitic uh, campaign. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but, but that was a way in which, again, influencing the curriculum uh, from a standpoint that appeared to be quite liberal uh, is another successful, or not, I wouldn't say successful, successful, but another strategy that's been adopted. Yes, one of our, I think our last conference, we had a presentation from Virginian activists about how the textbooks are being monitored and changed and recommendations are submitted to modify them to fit the Zionist narrative. So that's another level things are happening on, I think, in education, certainly. Right. So I have another question. Um, if ebb and flow for support of Palestinians have to do with violence, what can we do to make media report the everyday violence Israel's inflicting on Palestinians? How can we influence the mainstream media? We can't. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Well, you know, and, and I, I sort of, I'm joking, but I'm, but I'm not joking because one of the things that happened with, um, in 2014 that I think surprised everyone was the incredible courage of on the ground Palestinian journalists, Egyptian journalists, others, who documented and through social media uh, put out um, reportage and images that could not be ignored. And that was a turning point in 2014. Uh, th that media, I mean, you know, and, and it's, again, not to draw any straight parallel, but we wouldn't have a Derek Chauvin um, trial 
without Darnella Frazier and the cell phone. And so I think that the idea of trying to influence mainstream media just fails every single time. I mean, even those that claim to be liberal, like MSNBC, what they do is they just ignore it. They'll just ignore the story. They, they won't, they'll try to avoid, um, you know, bringing on a lot of uh, Israeli, you know, pro-Israeli uh, 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 talking heads or spokespeople, but they'll just ignore it. And so I think that alternative media is ultimately the answer. Um, I think that a lot of us who do uh, polit- do intellectual work and uh, who do activism and media work have to figure out a way to navigate to get onto these mainstream shows, but I just don't think they're going to give it up. I mean, we've seen so many studies and so many wonderful uh, but terrifying films about uh, the Palestine exception, about the way the media has basically had a blackout when it comes to uh, uh, violence against Palestinians. And, you know, it's tragic because we, we barely touch the surface. You know, when you think about, we talk about the occupied territories, uh, but there's so much going on within Israel itself, you know, let alone the uh, other forms of, of, of violence, anti-Black violence against the Somali, the East African population, uh, the Ethiopian Jews, and, you know, the way in which some of those stories are just completely erased. Uh, but I give credit to those people on the ground who keep, you know, trying to figure out a way to get the story out. And and also just the work that the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs does. You know, we, we've got to figure out a way to get these amazing stories in circulation, uh, you know, not necessarily on the media, but in people's hands, you know. Well, I think we have time for one final question. So I'm going to ask you why Grace Halsell is not better known today. She died in 2000. She wrote many books on Christian Zionism. So very relevant still. What happened to her? Well, par- part of it's my fault for being so slow trying to write this book. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm close, though. I've been, I've, I feel like I've spent so much time with her, and I'm really looking forward to it. I got derailed by actual struggles going on, you know, in, in this country and around the world, but it'll happen. And I do think the answer is pretty clear. Um, Grace in, in 1969, when uh, Soul Sister, her book, where she darkened her skin and lived as a black woman came out, that was a, that was a New York times bestseller. She was on um, the today show as a, almost a regular, she was, you know, internationally known and she was making great progress writing these other books. She had op-eds in the New York Times. People knew who she was. And then she wrote a book called Journey to Jerusalem, which was not intended to be any kind of like political expose, but just like the truth about what she saw when she went to the West Bank in, she was there in 1980, 81. And she published a book. And all hell broke loose. I mean, her publisher was like, we got to try to bury this book, but they published it anyway. Uh, they sent it out to, uh, quote unquote experts to, um, try to, um, uh, 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 denounce or at least, um, uh, uh, contradict 
some of the claims that she made uh, in the book. And she has evidence of, of state torture, you know, from interviews that she did, among other things. So it's, it's a book that's not even advocacy, but it's really kind of a, a, a story of families living in the West Bank. And that pressure, that force against her turned her into more of an activist, I think. Uh, and that's how she got involved with um, IMEU, uh, which was then AMEU. Uh, that's how she got involved uh, with with you and different organizations and wrote for um, uh, Washington Report and began to write specifically about uh, the Christian Zionist relationship to the maintenance of of the right in Israel and the the ongoing occupation in violence against Palestinians. And she made that connection and she wrote two books uh, specifically about that. And those books did not have the the um the imprint of a major publisher. Uh they were small publishers. And you begin to see her footprint kind of shrink, um, not from anything she did, because she's a great writer, but from the pressure, the kind of Zionist pressure uh, on her, both within the United States and elsewhere. Uh, and so now it's time to return to her work. And my book, hopefully, will do that and tell her entire story, but in the, in the process, also tell the story of the transformation of um, U.S. policy toward uh, Israel in this period and the sacrifices she made to try to tell that story. Well, I very much look forward to reading it, that's for sure. And I know we'll be selling it at Middle East Books and more. (laughs) I want to thank you so much again, Robin, for being with us today and for this illuminating discussion. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to see everybody.